All right, well, it's almost that time if you are a parent to take out a loan uh, and start gearing up for school. Um, you got to go buy shoes, you got to go, go buy backpacks, and if you're like uh, my kids, I'm sorry, uh, you're going to buy the first of like 17 water bottles that you're going to have to buy throughout uh, the course of the year. Uh, but what's going to happen, I mean, because that's right around the corner, school is going to be in in less than two weeks, everybody will be back at school, and teachers are, will face a unique, I'm sorry teachers, it's coming, but teachers will face a unique challenge in that they both have to kind of in that first week refresh a little bit uh, because there's been this break all summer long, so they've kind of got to refresh and review what was done the previous year while also introducing new material. And in a lot of ways, that's exactly what we've got to do this morning as well. Because we've taken a break for three months from our series through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And we went and we, finished, we went through Second Timothy for 12 weeks. And so today we're jumping back into that series, Prophets, Priests, and Kings, through those four books of the Bible. And so in a lot of ways, we need both a refresher and at the same time, we need to continue on so that we can finish this up before Thanksgiving. And so we've got a lot of work to do. That's what we've got to get into uh, this morning. But even as I was preparing throughout this week and refreshing everything in my own mind, I was amazed at how, like, perfectly what we talked about last week at the end of 2 Timothy, that the good disciple is never alone, how perfectly that ties into this series through these four books, because the whole aim, I think, of these four books is to increase our faith and our trust in the Lord, in, in His promises and in His faithfulness, that He will never leave you, that He will never forsake you, that He will never cast you aside, He will never abandon, He will never run out on you, He will never fail to provide, He will keep His promises because he's faithful it's just who he is and that's just one of the warm blankets that comes to us through these four books but what a warm blanket that is that God will never leave you he will never leave his people and he will never leave us even in the midst of mess that we get ourselves into or that seemingly comes upon us you'll never leave us in that because in these four books we see all kinds of mess and nonsense and chaos we've already seen men abusing women wives betrayed by husbands children gone slap crazy horrible dads the most dysfunctional families imaginable all right we've seen and we will see corrupt religious leaders, conspiracy to murder, deceitful politicians, mm -hmm. power struggles, the horrors of war. If you didn't know that these books were about events that happened 2,500 to 3,000 years ago, you would think everything I just read was today. Because here's the deal, technology changes, we make advances and all those sorts of things, but the human condition doesn't, right? Humanity is tainted 
fractured, broken by sin. It runs and wreaks havoc across, of, across all humanity. It did then, it does now. They were sinners then, we are sinners today. And so because of this, even though these books, you know, Old Testament, and a lot of times are probably, if we're going to be honest, not the ones you read a whole lot. They are filled with practical application for today because the human condition doesn't change. They're real books with real people that pull no punches. They show us both the horrors of the world that we live in and the hope of the world that we live in. And the main character of these four books, it's not Saul, it's not David, it's not Solomon, it's not the gazillion kings we're about to get into. The main character is God. He is the mover and shaker of everything in these books. God is the one who is on center stage in these books. He's the one who raises up people. He's the one who raises up kings. He's the one who raises up kingdoms. And he's the one who pulls them down. And so again, we've got a lot of work to do this morning by way of both the refresher and getting into the book itself. But refresh, refreshment? I don't know if this is a refreshment, but refreshing. I'm trying to do a refresher. I'm struggling for words. We're trying to do what we need. We need to ground ourselves. And these four books in the overall timeline of redemption history and just the overall story of the Bible. And so let's do that first. And so when you think about the Bible, just overall, right? 66 books of the Bible written over thousands of years by over 40 authors on three different continents, three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, a little bit of Aramaic. 66 books is almost kind of like a library. And yet, across all of those years, all of those authors, all those continents, all those languages, yet it has one overarching message. And to show you this, we're going to do something that I occasionally do. And it's read along with Pastor Joe. This Jesus Storybook Bible is one that uh, Sarah and I have about read, about worn out, uh, reading it with our kids at different ages and different stages of their development. But the, it's broken up into 44 different stories. I encourage you to get it. But the first one, I think, just sums up so well the overarching story of the Bible. And so almost like children's church in the church I grew up in, let's read together. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere. Because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror. To show us what he's like. To help us to know him. To make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail. The way red poppies grow wild. The way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too. And wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules. Telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God 
and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid, run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day... But wait. Our story starts where all good stories start. Right at the very beginning. So that just nails it. The Bible tells one overarching story. It is the story of eternity. It is the story of the cosmos. It is the story that we are all a part of. It's a four-act story of creation. And then the fall of man. When sin enters the world, man disobeys. Creation, fall, and then redemption. Centered in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. Creation, fall, redemption, and then a coming restoration. When Jesus returns and all the sad things come untrue. When Jesus returns and restores everything to perfection again. That's the great big story of the Bible. And it centers around Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. But another rubric for how to understand the overall story of the Bible is to trace the kingdom of God that Jesus talks so much about. To trace it across all the pages of the Bible. Because the kingdom of God is... What, what the kingdom of God is all about are three things. And we talked about it before. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. Right? You can write that down if you want. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And this first shows up in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we get the pattern of the kingdom laid out for us. You have God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing. Pattern of the kingdom laid out. But then they rebel against God. It fractures everything. Sin enters the world. Death enters the world. All these things enter the world. Creation is fractured. That's the fall of man that we've talked about. 
And so as you keep reading, you come to Genesis 12. And we find a covenant made with Abraham. And it's basically a promise to restore all that was fractured in the fall of mankind. Okay, it's a promise to return God's people. Because they've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. To return God's people to God's place under God's rule and blessing. I mean, you just listen to Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land, God's place, that I will show you and I will make you a great nation, God's people, and I will bless you, God's rule and blessing, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you. I will curse and all the families of the earth through you shall be blessed. And so Genesis 1 and 2, you have the pattern of the kingdom. Genesis 12, we have the promise of the kingdom. And then we get to 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and we come to the foreshadowing of the kingdom. With God's people, the consolidated people of Israel, in God's place, what we commonly call the promised land, under God's rule and blessing. But that's not the completion of the promise of Genesis 12. The kingdom of David is just a foreshadowing of the forever kingdom that is to come. It's pointing forward to that. And so again, in Eden, you have the the kingdom um, patterned. In Abraham, you have the kingdom promised. In David and Solomon, you have the kingdom foreshadowed with aspects of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. When Jesus shows up, he says the kingdom of God is at hand because he is God's people. He is God's place. He is God's rule and blessing. And when Christ returns, the restoration of all things we're talking about will have the finality of all that, the kingdom consummated. And God's people, all believers of all time, in God's place, not just a sliver in the Middle East, but the new heavens and the new earth, under God's rule and blessing. And He will dwell with His people and He will be their God and He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the ultimate fulfillment. That's the big story of the Bible. And then where these books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, fit in is in that foreshadowing of the kingdom section. And so 1 Samuel, just historically, is set around 1000 B.C., immediately after the period of the Judges. And long story short, 1 Samuel is primarily about the rise and fall of the first king of Israel, King Saul. And 2 Samuel, we've already gone through that one as well, is really a story of the rise and fall of King David. And the main point of that book is to show that when the ideal king comes, he will be a true and better David. First Kings transitions to David's son, Solomon, who starts off amazingly well before he caves into uh, just his lust for sex and money and pleasures under the sun, takes over and leads him into idolatry. And as a result of his sin and idolatry, the kingdom splits in two. And that's where we left off. First Kings chapter 11. And that's where we're going to pick it up in just a second. But just kind of keep teasing this out so we get this overview. Like I said, what happens is the kingdom's going to split in two. 
And listen closely because this is where some things start to get a little confusing. The kingdom splits in two and you have a northern kingdom and you have a southern kingdom. Okay? The northern kingdom is confusingly called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom is made up of 10 of the 12 tribes. The southern kingdom is primarily made up of Judah, but Benjamin goes along with it. All right? And David's line tracks through the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. All right? And there are occasionally good kings in Judah. Israel pretty much has no good kings. Judah occasionally has a couple. But still, ultimately, everything is crumbling away for both of these kingdoms. And their sin and idolatry will get to a place that God will destroy both of them. The end comes for the kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians come in and destroy them. Judah continues on for a little bit longer until 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroy the temple and haul everyone off into exile. That's what First and Second Kings that we are about to enter into are all about. But it's not all bleak and sad. God preserves a remnant. And God is still God. He's still on his throne. And though it was the end of the Israelite monarchy, it was not the end of the story that God was doing. This was just a part of you know, what he's working out before the foundations of the world. The Israelites were never intended to be the final fulfillment of his gospel promise. They were simply a part of the foreshadowing of the kingdom to come. And so with all of that said, there's your refresher. I don't know if it was refreshing, but hopefully it was rem- reminding. Now let's jump into 1 Kings chapter 12. So 1 Kings chapter 12, page 293 in the black hardback Bibles around you. We've talked high level about the splitting of the kingdom. Let's dive into, you know, the fine print a little bit. And the fine print, what's going on is chapter 11. God has told Solomon, I'm going to split the kingdom. I'm going to tear it away from you. And he's also told the prophet, God's told a prophet named Ahijah this same thing. And he told him to go to a guy named Jeroboam. All right. I'm going to have a ton of weird names. Hopefully I can impress you over the weeks to come with pronunciations that are good and right. But I may not. But this guy, Jeroboam, he says, Ahijah, go to Jeroboam and tell him that, you're, that I'm going to take the kingdom from Solomon. I'm going to split it. And Jeroboam is going to be the king of the ten northern tribes. And so Ahijah tells him this. Solomon somehow gets word about this. Sets out to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam flees to Egypt. And is waiting for Solomon to die. And that's where we'll pick it up. We'll actually hit the end of chapter 11. Starting in verse 41. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So we've got Rehoboam. And we've got Jeroboam, not confusing at all, all right? Rehoboam, son of Solomon. Jeroboam, just some guy's son of Nebat. We'll just stop there. (laughs) Chapter 12. So Rehoboam, all right, son of Solomon, went to Shechem, 
For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, Go away for three days, and then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel of He abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise if we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king said, come to me again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shelanite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And so basically what happens next is the ten northern tribes are like, fine, we're out then. We're going to make Jeroboam our king. You're going to make it worse? We're we're out. So Rehoboam's like, fine, I've got 180,000 men. Let's go. Let's fight. And then he gets a word from a man of God in verse 24 that says, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home. For this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home according to the word of the Lord. Now, I want you to note verse 15, maybe even highlight it, and verse 24. They're kind of the ends of each of these two sections, and both of them cap these sections with a huge theological note that we may have missed in our initial reading. Look at verse 15 again. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word. And then in verse 24, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel, Every man returned to his home, for this thing is from me. And so before we make like just practical applications from this story, we need to make sure that we understand what the writer wants us to see primarily. The focus here is on divine sovereignty. 
not on the lack of wisdom of the youth or how the older people were ignored. We might be right to make notes of such things, but the point in the text is that God is keeping His Word sovereignly. And this does not mean that it's like mechanical and Rehoboam had no choice. Rehoboam, God does not override Rehoboam's will here. Rehoboam makes his own stupid decisions. Yet, this whole event happened through a turn of events from the Lord. God is actually accomplishing His purposes and that's the point. And that's something we need to hear. God is still in control. No human being, regardless of how much power or, that he actually has or thinks he has, can compete with the rule and reign of the Lord. The writer of Proverbs says it like this, A king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. And so in the middle of political and social chaos, remember, there's only one who sits on the throne of eternity. And he will have the last word. Psalm 115 verse 3, God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And so friends, this should help all of us in this room worry a little bit less. Worry a little bit less about who is in power and be far less excited when our candidate is in power. Because left, right, Republican, Democrat, Independent, God is in the heavens. And He does as He pleases. He will accomplish His work regardless because He's God. And by definition, He can't not accomplish His purposes. This doesn't mean we just sit around twiddling our thumbs all day, right? But it does mean we can chill out a little bit with our worry and our anxiety globally, politically, personally, relationally, financially. Like a Christian, we should develop really strong reflexes to be able to understand and instantly recognize the erroneous assumptions behind fear-mongerers, which like pervade our society today. Moms, you better do this, or your kids will think that you hate them and they'll turn out to be serial killers. Right? That's how all commercials work. You better do this. Let me scare you to death and show you if you don't do this, then everything's going to go bad for you. You better vote this way or the country's absolutely going to implode and kids will be eating dogs and cats. You know what lies behind all of these, like the assumptions that lie behind all of these fear-mongering tactics? The assumption behind them all. That there is no God. They're all an atheistic ploy. And when we give in to them and believe them, we're believing atheistic assumptions. My friends, God is still there 
in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. And so we do not need to give in to fear-mongering. Instead, we need to trust God. Again, doesn't mean you don't do anything. Okay, you do. You take action because God's there. He's at work, and he works through the very ordinary means of grace and just ordinary ways of life. That's how he works. Verse 15, this turn of affairs through ordinary things was brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. And so remember that in the midst of chaos and anxiety and breathe. (sighs) Breathe. God's on the throne. And as we sang just a couple minutes ago, he often moves in mysterious ways and the Flower may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be its bloom. Trust. Trust. Walk by faith. All right? Getting back to the text here. So we've got the kingdom torn. They'll scuffle with one another for the next 150 years. And thus far, all we've read, we seem like Jeroboam seems like an okay guy, right? That's just because we haven't read far enough. He is not. Look at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to the Lord, their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is Aaron on repeat. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Friends, have you ever heard the phrase that The end justifies the means. Yeah, we've all heard that. For the Christian, means matter. Means matter. We are not consequentialists with a utilitarian theory of ethics that vacillates and changes based upon circumstances. We are followers of Christ. We are followers of the gospel. We are followers of his word and his example at all times. So means matter. But not for Jeroboam. For Jeroboam, the political end of gaining political power justified whatever means it took to get it. By any means necessary. And so for him, that was sitting, setting up a rival house of worship in his kingdom. One that his people could take pride in and not feel the need to go to Jerusalem. They could stay in the northern kingdom and, 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 and you know, worship there as well. Not only did he create this false temple, he created false gods. And you know, he went all in, creating false holidays, false priests, if we kept reading. And he led his Limbing followers away from true worship of the Lord to worshiping idols. Here's where this comes down to us. We need to be very, 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 very careful of embracing, ever embracing an all-encompassing mindset 
that our desired ends justify means that are not of God. We're Christians, not consequentialists with a utilitarian theory of ethics. We get our marching orders from Jesus. And when means cease to matter, and we just ignore things or justify things away, it's often a sign that idolatry has set in and taken root. And by idolatry, I'm not just talking about these literal false gods that Jeroboam has here. We don't give in to that, normally. At football games, we might be hard-pressed to... (laughs) We might. But idolatry is whatever you desire more than God. Whatever you want more than God. Whatever is more important than God. That's idolatry. And so Jeroboam here, yes, he's got these literal false gods he sets up that he worships, but he also considers politics more important than faithfulness to God. And he will accomplish whatever he needs to accomplish by any means necessary. His idol is politics. Is it yours? Which gets more of your emotional and mental energy? Pursuing the things of God and accomplishing His mission? Or pursuing the things of your preferred politician and seeing that their mission is accomplished? Which gets more of your emotional and mental energy? Which one concerns and consumes you most? Don't be an idolater. Jeroboam, look where it leads. Chapter 14, verse 7. This is going to hit hard, and then we're going to see the gospel. Verse 7. Ahijah is talking again. Go tell Jeroboam. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you, from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was, writ- which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it's all gone. God does not play around with idolatry. Verse 14, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim, which is false gods, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. And so here's a question I want us to think about. And, and it's, this is a Sunday school. Like, this isn't a hard question. Don't overthink this. Why is God going to do this to Jeroboam? 
Verse 8 gives you the answer. He's sin, he's idolatry, yeah. Quite specifically, he says, you know, um, I tore away the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which rich which was right in my eyes, but you've done all this evil. Now, here's the question. Did David always do things perfectly? No, we studied that. So what's the difference? Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Like David sinned horribly, just like we do, right? He did, but he actually loved God. He doesn't view God as some pawn in a scheme for his own self-promotion, self-advancement. He loved God, and when he sinned, he recognized it eventually and repented. He turned away. That's what repentance means. Turning from your sin and turning to God. Right? For some of you, that hasn't happened in the first capital R repentance. And so today is a day of salvation for you to turn from your sin and yourself and turn to God and receive from Him the free gift of salvation that He offers. For others of you, we need to turn again. Martin Luther says that the life is, all of life is repentance. It's continual repentance that we live in. And so David is a sinner just like you and I. But the good news of the gospel is that God is merciful to sinners. He forgives idolaters like us and hypocrites also like us. He offers everlasting life to dying people. And this salvation is made possible through the work of the King of Kings that these books and indeed all the Bible are pointing to. The King who left His throne in heaven, took our judgment on the cross, rose from the dead and opened a way of salvation for all who will heed Christ's call and repent and believe. And so friends, don't persist in your sin. Repent. Look to Jesus as your sin-bearing substitute. It's our only hope at being made right before the God of the universe is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will work. Jesus takes our lack of righteousness, our sin and our wickedness, He takes that upon Himself and He gives to us His righteousness, His perfections, so that we can stand clean without blemish before the God of the universe, not on the basis of anything we've done, but only on the basis of what Jesus has done. And so Jesus gets all the glory for it. And we can't walk then with a swagger, you know, all boastful in ourselves because we didn't do anything. All we brought to the table was our sin. Jesus did it all. And so no boasting, no swagger, but we can walk in quiet, humble confidence. Confidence that God loves us. Confidence that God is for us. Confidence that God works all things to the good of those who love Him. 
and are called according to his purpose in confidence of our place in his coming kingdom. When Jesus cracks the sky and comes again and the finality of it all, Genesis 12, finally fulfilled. And for all time, God's people are in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so that day's coming. We look forward to that day with great hope and expectation. But dear friends, even as we await that day, Christ is still reigning and ruling from on high right this second turning affairs of casual, regular, ordinary days to his purposes. Because he's still God. Which means he's still faithful. And he's still working in the midst of your chaos and in the midst of your lives and in the midst of the geopolitical things. God is still at work in that, working for us, in us, through us. And in reality, all of that is a refresher that we always need to keep in mind and hear over and over and over. The Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your power, your omnipotence, your omniscience, your omnipresence. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. We thank you that you are God and there is no other. There is no other like you calling out the end from the beginning and doing so with kindness and mercy and grace and love for your people that will never end, never be taken from us. And now because we are worthy but because you were faithful. And so, Father, I pray for those in here, Lord, who are maybe struggling with uh, anxiety, maybe gripped with worry. Father, would you help them? Holy Spirit, would you apply with kind forcefulness though but kind just embed in their heart that you are God and that we are not meant to control that which we can't control we're meant to pray about it and trust you we're meant to do what we can do and let you do what only you can do and so, Father, I also pray for those in here who maybe have never given their life to you. They've never trusted you. They've never repented and believed and received the free offer of salvation that you offer. Forgiveness of sins because of what Jesus has done. Father, I pray that you would press upon them by the power of your Holy Spirit their need and that, they would, that you would regenerate their hearts and they would repent and believe. We ask you to do that because you can. Father, for all of us, help us, God, to be followers of Christ. Always. When the world fights, 
unfairly. We entrust ourselves to Christ. And we follow him. Even to the cross, which we are to bear daily as we follow him. Help us in all these things. You are our only hope. And you are a guaranteed hope. In Jesus' name, amen.